Okay, guys, in a long list of incredible guests, this might be one of the more incredible ones, and I've become a gigantic fan of hers. Megan Kelly, how you doing? Hi, I'm so excited for this. I, too, am your gigantic fan. So this is a dream. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Uh, we went on a few trips uh, this summer because uh, my overlord, Justin Trudeau, does not allow me to have personal agency. <laughs> and so I have to stay within the confines of Quebec. And so we decided, my family and I, to take a whole bunch of road trips, you know, within three, four hundred kilometers away. And on each of those trips... Who were we listening to? Who was parasitizing our brains? It was oh. Megan Kelly's show. So we're oh, all now fans. The Sad Family are avowed fans of your show. That is so nice to hear. Yeah, I'll return the compliment. Last night at our house, we had over two very powerful law enforcement types. And we, Doug and I were imitating different GADSAD acts. You know how you do your funny bits? We each had our favorite. I was doing mine. He was doing his. And so you have some new, some two, you have two new big fans. Uh, one's a CIA guy and one's a cop guy. Oh, that is fantastic. <laughs> I, I, let me tell you something. I actually get more chills when I receive an email, you know, fan email from a corrections officer or, you know, Green Beret than I do from many of the, you know, castrated highfalutin Stanford types. So, mm -hmm. so thank you for that. Uh, let me just, for, those, for the three people who don't know who you are, let me uh, just give a quick bio. So you're a journalist, you're the host of the Megan Kelly Show, which recently was picked up by Sirius XM, I think last week. Yeah. You'll yep. tell us how that's going. You wrote a book in 2016, a memoir, uh, titled Settle for More, which actually has some really interesting, just the title has some very interesting psychological implications. You're listed in 2014 as one of the Times 100 most influential people. My goodness. And you claim that you went only to Syracuse and Alvey Law School. This proves to you that you don't have to go to the fancy schools to be a huge star in life. That's right. I, I always remind my fellow parents of this because I, what I look around and see is people ruining their children's lives in order to get into Harvard. And I just wanted them to remember, like, first of all, I don't want my kids to go to Harvard, not not even a little. Um, I, if, you're, if your kids go to Harvard, what's likely to happen? They're probably going to wind up being an investment banker, maybe a lawyer. Um, I don't want that for my kids. That's not really I, – I was a lawyer. I don't really recommend it. And I certainly don't want them to be investment bankers. It's, it doesn't make virtually anybody happy. Um, so I'm really hoping that they do something, some sort of, I don't know if it's a career passion. I don't know. I'm not sure if I believe in that either, but just something interesting that might give back to the world. And you don't have to go to Harvard for that. And I don't want to ruin their teenage years or their K through 12 years for this elusive goal. And let's face it, all three of my kids are, you know, two white kids and a, two white boys and a white girl who have absolutely no disabilities. And so like Harvard's probably not going to happen either way, Gad. So what I want them to remember is you can go to Syracuse, you can go to Albany Law School, and if you bust your ass and you try hard, you can do well. Incidentally, you probably don't know this, but you and I were very close to one another geographically because I was at one of those uh, upper smarty type of schools. I was at Cornell from 1990 to 1994 getting oh, yeah. an MS and PhD. And so, uh, so in exactly the time, so I think you graduated in 92 and 95, so we would have been smack. And as a matter of fact, I went to play in soccer tournaments in Syracuse. And forgive me if I insult anybody from Syracuse, I've always wondered who actually makes the decision, the willful decision to live in Syracuse. Was I unfair, Megan? No, it wasn't. In fact, I was a little brainwashed because I, well, I wasn't born there. I was born in Illinois, but when I was seven months, we moved there because my dad took a job teaching at the university. He was an education professor for PhD students. And um, so I spent the first almost 10 years of my life there. And 
it's what I knew. You know, I thought that that was how people lived. Uh, only 100 days of sun a year, gray almost every day, snow up to your armpits. Um, and that's just, that's life. So I move away to the, the, the balmy town of Albany. <laughs> and all my worldviews were confirmed. Yes, this is how people live. There's no sun anywhere. There's only snow. And then finally I finished Albany, go go back to Syracuse for college, go back to Albany for law school. And finally I got smart and got out of there. And wh- where did I go? Chicago. Oh. So it, really, it took me till I was almost 30 to realize I don't have to live like this. There are other options and um, now, you know, I don't know. I'm still in the Northeast, but I've gotten to a little bit sunnier pastures. You know, I uh, so I've had a family in Southern California since 1984. So it's like a second home to me. Plus, I lived there for a few years uh, as a visiting professor at the University of California, Irvine. And then I, you know, came back to Montreal kicking and screaming because the visiting position never turned into a permanent position. And it's been since 2003 that I've been trying to return to Southern California. But now, given what happened yesterday, I no longer feel any cognitive mm-hmm. dissonance at returning to Southern California. So maybe we could start by talking about what is going on in California, Megan. Well, aren't you a little relieved that Larry didn't win because it would have made it even tougher on you? That's what I was thinking. You know, like I, I feel for people like Ben Shapiro, he's probably heaving a, a huge sigh of relief today because he would have had a second guess his decision if California exactly. had, put, had put Larry in office. To me, look, it's it's remarkable that Larry did as well as he did and that this went as far as it did. And that's really the story. It's people are making it into some big victory that Gavin Newsom retained his job in a, in a state in which Democrats outnumber Republicans five by five million, right, in which no Republican holds statewide office. So the writing was on the wall. And it's been 20 years since the other recall that was successful. So it's a generation that's had Democrat rule and is used to it. So it's really not surprising that Gavin Newsom held on to his job. And, and I do feel like, okay, you know, if Californians want that, great, enjoy. And, and, you know, laws of natural consequences. We'll see how that works out. We'll see how it's worked out so far. It's not for me. California is gorgeous. It doesn't have the Syracuse problem with the weather, but it's got a whole host of other problems that really, for good reasons, are driving people out of there. So in the end, they'll wind up with only very, very left-leaning blue, blue voters. And they can see how that works out as a you know, criminal matter, as an illegal immigration matter, and as a taxation matter, because eventually they are going to run out of other people's money. But are you hopeful that people, most honest people, eventually sort of autocorrect out of their positions if their positions are proven to be lacking in veracity? Because, you know, as we discussed, you know, when you kindly invited me on your show in The Parasitic Mind, I talk about how people's minds can be infected with parasites that cause them to engage in disordered behavior. And so I look at all of my colleagues, uh, you know, and while I'm housed in, I mean, I'm, I'm in Canada, uh, you know, most of my colleagues are American and most of them are progressive and they, they're supposedly super intelligent and nuanced and reasoned and, you know, they have well-articulated positions, but they're none of those things. So that there's almost no amount of evidence that I could ever offer that would even allow them to move one millimeter from their position. Are, are you more optimistic than I am that people can actually change their minds? No, but I'm more optimistic that you than you are that uh, on the numbers of woke people. I think you're in academia, and that's like you know that's like growing up in Scientology and and believing that the whole world is never going to accept that you know they shouldn't be worshiping a clam. Most people don't worship the clam. Only the people in Scientology worship the clam, and they don't reveal the clam until you get high up in the in the cult. Um, I think outside of academia, there are definitely woke people, but it's not as much of a, a, a parasite as it is in your field. And I think while Californians are definitely left, they're progressive, 
I do think that when the natural consequences of some of the political decisions come back to haunt them, like, you know, we're seeing it now nationwide when it comes to inflation, uh, they'll, they, they may reconsider the, the drunken spending that they're doing or take, take a better example more recently with the defund the police movement, which is completely collapsed. It's, it's over and it's, it's so over. Now you've got all of the Democrats in the Senate openly declaring that they're against defunding the police. And really, it's been limited now to a few kooks like the squad in the House of Representatives and on a city-by-city basis, even the most liberal blue cities, they're reversing those policies because they've seen what it does. Yeah, yeah I hear you. Uh, speaking of the squad, are you? I'm assuming that you're already looking to find your own uh, version of the dress tax the rich for your next party? <laughs> my, my dress is going to read, do your part. <laughs> uh, uh, I want to go back. I, I'm, I'm going to skip all over the place, very organic, because I promised that I would ask about settle for more. So in, in psychology, there is this psychometric scale. A psychometric scale is just a fancy term for a personality trait. And the scale is basically called to satisficing versus maximizing. So to satisfice means to simply say, you know, it's good enough. So I don't have to look at all of the options of all the possible cars before I make a choice. I will find the car that hopefully passes all my criteria and that's good enough. That would make me a satisficer. A maximizer would be someone who needs to look at every single op option because they want to maximize their utility and so on. Well, the title of your book, Settle for More, in a sense is a contradiction in term because the settle is on the satisficing side Settle for more would be a more maximizing side. So based on what I just described in terms of psychometric scale, are you a satisficer or a maximizer? I definitely think I'm a satisficer. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I'm not somebody who goes, in fact, I just, I, I was just in the car market thinking, I just, look, I want something very simple. Um, so I don't look around at everything and, and before I make a decision, except in a few key areas, right? Like when it comes to my relationships, uh, I would say I'm a maximizer. So meaning a, a romantic relationship or you mean? Yeah, my love relationship. Yes. Yeah, my, my romantic relationships. Um, I, I definitely, there's an area in which I, I would just phone that in and say, this is good enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, I kind of did that first time around with all due respect to my first husband. And I learned that's not a good way to pick a long-term mate. You really do have to be very choosy. You, you shouldn't just look at how it looks on paper. You have to be smarter. But I, I think... When you're when, then, then you make your decisions and you live with your decisions. And if they turn out to be less than exciting, less than rewarding, less than you'd hoped, you should be pretty quick to make a different decision, right? So maybe if I were a maximizer, I wouldn't have to keep making different decisions. But I'm uh, too tired. I'm a low energy person, Gad. I can't go through life like that. <laughs> All right. So that's uh, you, you mentioned. Uh, so you okay? You were married once, then you 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 know you divorced. Then you pivoted, if I can use that obnoxious term. You yeah. did the same thing in your career. You started as a lawyer, then you pivoted to something else. And that's interesting because in, in my next book that I'm currently working on, I talk about you know the two most important decisions that we'll make in life are choosing the right mate and choosing the right job or profession because most of our waking hours and even our sleeping hours when we're sleeping next to someone is spent either with someone enough that we've chosen as a mate or we're spending our time at work. So there is kind of a, a tension between making the right choice and sticking to it, you know, grit, perseverance, but also having the humility to say, look, this is not working. I'm ready to pivot. So in your case, you clearly struck the right balance where you knew that, you know, not to succumb to some cost bias and move on to something else. Can you offer the people who will be listening how to navigate through the stick to it versus pivot away from it? 
Yes. Well, so just today on my show, I interviewed uh, Professor Scott Galloway. Oh, yes, I know. NYU, yeah, business school guy. He partners with Kara Swisher on this very successful podcast, too. And he was saying that he's an atheist. And he was saying that um, he likes being an atheist because he does, he likes believing that there is, there's no second act. This is it. You, you know, you got to go. You gotta Carpe diem. Yeah, exactly. And that, that helps him live a more productive life. I am not an atheist. I'm a Catholic. I believe in God. But... I also have the gift of believing, not that this is it, but that it's it, it's short and there it's not a dress rehearsal and this phase at least ends and this phase is important and rewarding and I have to make the most of it. And I did get that after my dad died um, when I was very young and it was sudden death. So I think that that has helped me trade in when very important areas of my life are going very poorly for a sustained period of time. Right. I don't believe in long term solutions to short term problems. You know, you don't leave New York City because the covid restrictions are a pain in the ass. You know that they'll end eventually. Right. But there are very good reasons to leave New York that are, that are beyond that. Um, but I do think once life has been unhappy, a major area of your life has been unhappy for a sustained period. It makes sense to reevaluate. And I've done that. And I'm not afraid to do that. And I think I'll, I'll continue doing that to the day I die. Even Doug is not safe. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, boy. I hope he doesn't <laughs> listen to this. Uh, no, he does. He he's a novelist, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, very good. Uh, do you regret any decisions? And I and let me before I ask you to, to answer that question, one of my uh, former professors in uh, my doctoral program uh, is a very well-respected professor by the name of Thomas Gilovich, and he pioneered the study of the psychology of regrets. Specifically, he talks about two types of regrets. Uh, regret due to an action. You know, I regret now looking back that I cheated on my wife and I shouldn't have done that. So that's regret due to an action versus regret due to an inaction. You know, I never really wanted to be an accountant. I only became an accountant because my dad is an accountant, but really I wanted to go into medicine and I regret that I never went to medical school. And when it comes to long-term regrets, typically people regret a lot more inactions rather than actions. Are there any things that you're still young. Are there any things that today keep you up at night, haunting you with regret, whether it be action or inaction? So this is sort of an interesting area because honestly, I, I'm thinking about it. I don't have any regrets. Wow. It's not to say that I have not made mistakes, but I don't regret my mistakes. You know what I mean? Like they were all learning opportunities. And I think in general, I'm a very forgiving person, even of myself. You know, I, I always make the best decision I can for the time. Um, and while it's not always the right decision, I understand at the time I had good reasons for doing it. I'm a rational, intelligent person, so I'm not particularly reckless. Um, so no, I really, I, I honestly am thinking like, and I would tell you, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay with who I am. No, and that's not to say I haven't made mistakes. I just don't regret them. Well, you know, that's that's one hell of a prescription to be happy at the end of your life because. There's a, the Greeks, and I, I learned this in doing the research for my for my the book that I'm writing now. They have a concept, the ancient Greeks, I mean, have a concept called ataraxia, which basically refers to tranquility of mind. And I argue that you know one source that can affect our t- tranquility of mind is regret, right? And especially regret that we can't go back and change, right? It eats away at us like a cancer. Maybe I'll share some of my regrets then. How yeah, about that? Tell me, what are, what are you lamenting? So yeah, so I think one thing that I regret very much is that, well, this one wasn't really under my control. I There were only two things that I was ever interested in. Uh, I was a very, very serious soccer player heading off to Europe to play professionally. And I was always, always interested in academia, always thought that I would eventually become a professor. So yeah. uh, when I had the, the, the soccer injury that sort of ended my career, uh, I could have potentially tried to 
continue playing, see if I could recover from this injury. But the orthopedic surgeon didn't think that I would recover. And so I, you know, packed my bags and moved on into academia. And I always regret the fact that I didn't, you know, give it one more go to see if I could have, you know, uh, fulfilled all my you know, talent and promise. So that's one source of regret. So what can I ask you about that? Of course. So, I mean, I understand that, that way of thinking, I would say my own way of thinking about something like that would be, so what happened when I made the other, when I went through the other sliding door, right? Like, and yeah. I don't know what happened, but I'll bet a bunch of wonderful things happened. And you met some wonderful people and you stimulated your mind and you read a bunch of texts. You might not otherwise have read at a young age in your life. And all of that went into those are ingredients in the cake that you are now. So who knows what kind of cake we'd be you'd be serving up at this moment if you hadn't started. And I wouldn't be talking to Megan Kelly if I had been a soccer player. Yeah, like I, I guess I just sort of see it as you went down this path, and I'll bet there was all sorts of goodness on that path, and maybe the other path would have been full of more injury and heartache and disappointment. You just never know. So it's like. I took the path I took. It got me to where I am. Am I good with where I am? That's the more relevant question. God damn, that is one healthy mindset that you have. You are hired as my uh, proxy therapist. Uh, we'll talk about therapy in a bit because there's some real nice stuff that I'd like to unpack there. Second source of regret, and here I'm sort of giving people little morsels from my next book. You know, I, I think I suffer from too much of a purity bend, right? So there are some things on which I never violate sort of these deontological principles, whereas life is a lot more pragmatic, right? There's a lot more gray. And my mother would always tell me when I was a kid, you know, life is not black and white, Gad. You have to get out of your purity bubble. Now, you might say, well, what, what is it that you re regret about that? So for example... Wait, first, what's deontological? Oh, deontological means... Well, th you know, see, that is such humility to actually ask someone, hey, I don't know what this word means. My goodness, you are charming. Uh, <laughs> all right, so... So deontological basically is to be contrasted with uh, consequentialist. Deontological ethics would be, it is never okay to lie. That's a deontological statement. Okay. A consequentialist statement would be, it's okay to lie if you are trying to spare someone's feelings. So if your spouse says, do I look fat in these jeans? You better put on your consequentialist hat real quickly <laughs> and say, absolutely not. I've never seen you look this good, right? So you're lying, but you're doing it for, you know, valuable consequentialist consequences, whereas deontological is no, you never violate. So okay. on some things, I'm very deontological driven. For example, the pursuit of truth. Hence, that's where my honey badger attitude comes from. That, that kind of swagger comes from the fact that I get personally offended by BS, by bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. And so I do regret that I didn't have a bit more pragmatism in my career in that I didn't take certain opportunities to be more of a careerist because I viewed being a careerist as a sellout. It would have been to sacrifice my purity. So for example, if someone asked me to co-author a paper with them, probably because they just wanted to ride on my name, if I could say. Well, I wouldn't take this opportunity because I would say, well, I don't feel that I would have contributed enough to be an author on this paper, so I am not going to do this. But I know at 99% of my colleagues are doing these types of scams. So I am basically the cyclist who is the non-doper in the Tour de France who is saying, why am I finishing behind these other guys? I know they're doping, but I am a deontological guy. I will never dope, but I won't, right? So I regret that. I would have liked to have been more pragmatic, not a scammer, never, never sacrifice my integrity, but a bit more sort of pragmatic that's another thing I regret. What, what are your thoughts about that, Dr. My, Kelly? My thoughts are one of the things we love about you is like you're somewhat irascible, right? Like <laughs> you're not afraid to sort of show when you're pissed off and somebody's behaved like a moron and you, you call them out. 
And you might be less irascible if you had done that and rubbed elbows and gotten along and, you know, sort of ascended in the exactly. way that these people who play the game ascend. And and your sharp edges are part of what make you so attractive. So oh, I wouldn't be goodness. looking to round those out if I were you. you. you know, oh, my goodness. You know, uh, in, in, when, when I was turning my family into avowed fans of yours, uh, my wife turns to me, she goes, you know, I think Megan and I would be good friends. And so I'm only <laughs> accumulating evidence to that very astute statement on her part. All right, uh, let's speak about honey badgers since, since you know, you're, you're talking about my honey badger quality. You certainly are a honey badger. You actually thread the needle very nicely between, you know, being very warm, very, you know, great conversationalist, but you're also a no-nonsense gal, right? You kind of remind me, and I, I hope that that's a compliment. I can't quite pronounce her name, the former press secretary of Donald Trump, Kaylee McEnany. Kaylee McEnany. Is that is that a good comparison in the sense that you know you both present? I would say, a... uh, with all due respect to Kaylee, who I like and I see what she does, but I think I'm much more rooted in truth than she is, which is why I could never do that job. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the job. If you're going to take that job, you got to be willing to lie and and spin, and that and she did that job well. But I just I could never do it because I I'm a little bit more deontological. So you're you're <laughs> more on the purity that. bubble bent of God's side. Yeah, when it comes to truth, I just think I, I would be bridging away from the question every day if I were in there because I, I couldn't lie. So I would just be like, you know, it's so funny that you should ask me about, you know, unilateral strikes without the support of NATO, which we roundly criticized when we were, you know, back before we got into office. Um, because I was just talking about strikes with my kid who was on the baseball field. And then I'd be off asking <laughs> a totally different question because I can't, I just yeah. couldn't mislead the way you have to in that yeah. role. Well, I've been, I've been often asked, even by some very you know, powerful political people. Hey, you know, you should run for office. You, you're you're very well known, certainly in Canada. You'd 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 easily win. And I said, I would be dead in 15 seconds as a politician <laughs> because the first most banal lie that I would have to tell, which wouldn't even shatter my purity bubble, I wouldn't be able to do it. And if I did it, I would be stuck in a loop of guilt that would completely para paralyze me, <laughs> that I would be the most useless politician. And then they get back to me and say, no, but that's the kind of guy we need, you know, an honest person. I don't think you could be honest and a politician or and you can't probably be a lawyer very often and be honest as well, right? Oh, absolutely not. And that's that's why that skill bridging is one of the things they taught me at a very young age when I was at Jones Day, a great law firm. And it was a great skill because it allows you not to lie. It allows you just get to get off of the very uncomfortable subjects when a judge is looking right at you saying, why didn't your client comply with my order? You don't have to give him a straight answer. You just get out of bounds. It's a skill as a, as a public figure as well. But I'm with you. I think it's the reason why a lot of good people choose not to go into politics. And when you see somebody who seems like a truly good man or woman, like I just went down to this thing for Dan Crenshaw in Houston. Yeah. He's a truly good man. It's an anomaly and you get excited about it. Yeah. What do you think of uh, our, uh, I like to call him our castrato in chief, uh, Justin Trudeau. Any comments about him? I, I think he's more of a woman than I am. <laughs> he's so <laughs> effeminate. He's, he's, I find him so unattractive. I'm sorry. I don't care if people don't like it. Spot on. He, I'm like, would you man up and stop saying things like she covery and she economy? Oh, you know about this. I makes me uh, throw up a little in my mouth. She session, she session. Yeah, she session. Uh, God, but, the naked pandering. How pathetic is he? And how pathetic he must think we are. I put up a I put up a tweet earlier today. I don't know if your team told you about it because I'm sure you were busy with your show. Uh, I said later today I will be speaking to one of these four ladies. Who is it? Number one. Justin Trudeau. 
Number, oh, no way. Number two, uh, occasional cortex, AOC. I call her occasional cortex. Number three, <laughs> Megan Kelly. Number four, Ilhan Omar. Well, it turns out that my followers are very smart. 61% picked Megan Kelly and almost all the rest picked Justine Trudeau as the person that I'm speaking to today. So there you go. Uh, I, I just object to, like, I object to the loss of manhood in our men in general. I don't like the whole toxic masculinity BS, and I really don't like the pumpkin spice latte drinking, you know, Brooklyn, not just regular Brooklyn, Park Slope Brooklyn guys who are running around trying to be, they're, they're, it's not that they're trans, it's that they're men who think that evolved men look and act like women. I, that's not attractive to me, and I don't want to be around it and I don't want to elect it in a leader. <laughs> did we did we speak on your show about my uh, male social justice warriors as sneaky fuckers? That's an actual zoological <laughs> term. Did we talk about that? No, why? how did I miss that gold? Did we? That, yeah, you, somebody on your team should be fired for not having raised that on your show. Uh, so let me mention it here, if I may, yeah, and then you can yeah. tell me what, because it speaks exactly to what you just said about men. So uh, in the zoological literature, this came out probably in the 70s, the, there was a term which was colloquially referred in the scientific literature as sneaky fucker, but the real term is kleptogamy. This is where you typically have males of a species who come in one of two phenotypes. There's either the, the, you know, the, the bulky masculine male. There's another type of male that mimics a female. And so what he'll do is as he comes by a big male and he wants to get access to the females that are you know, behind the protective male, he will send out cues as though he is a female so that the big male will let him through and then he will sneak in the copulations and hence he's known as a sneaky fucker. Mm. And so I argued in the parasitic mind that what male social justice warriors do is they are engaging in a form of sneaky fucker mating strategy. And that's exactly what Justin Trudeau is doing. He is so empathetic. He is so gentle. He's so hugging of the tree so that he thinks that that will make him so uh, non-intimidating and hopefully he can sneak in some uh, surreptitious mating opportunities. What do you think of this theory? I think uh, it, as, you know another name might be Terrible fuckers, because I, I just have every belief that he's terrible in bed. Somebody like that, so the ladies may be wooed while they're over like a glass of wine with somebody like that. He looks at them, he listens, he's empathetic, he feels your pain. But then you got to get the job done in the bedroom. Get, then you need somebody to get on top of you and get down to business. And I, oh. I like, I don't want to have to coax him into it, and I don't, I, I shouldn't be in charge in that room. And he I mean, maybe every once in a while, but he not shouldn't as shouldn't cry before and after the orgasm. Oh my God, if... If Doug ever cried in our bedroom, I've never seen him cry. If he ever cried in our bedroom, I'd, I'd need an instant divorce. It's over. I'm sorry, but I don't want that on top of me. And I think I speak for a lot of women when I say that. I do. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, let's speak about a big brute since we mentioned him earlier with the press secretary. I know you've had your run-ins with Donald Trump. I've gotten all sorts of flack because apparently I'm the sole unicorn in academia who dares to even defend him in the most banal of ways. I don't even frankly defend him. Rather, I argue that there are compelling reasons why perfectly rational people could have voted for him. And I offer these reasons. So it's not even a defense of him, but rather it's a defense of the psychological processes that might lead someone to prefer him over Clinton or Biden and so like, on. Like 75 million Like 75 people. million people. They can't all be toothless bigots who sleep with their sisters. So in your case, you've had your run-ins with, uh, with Donald Trump. So there's this personal animus. But of course, you strike me as a non-woke person. So if you were to, what's your position on Trump vis-a-vis -vis Biden or Clinton or all the rest of the woke people? So, I mean, my, I had an interesting journey with him where we were friendly and I liked him and we got along. And then he kept coming after me for about nine months after that debate question. 
And I didn't enjoy that. And it did upend my life in a, in a major way. So he was irritating to me for that time. And whatever, I didn't, you know, I don't really put a lot of stock in any politician. So it wasn't, I was never somebody who would have been like Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. I'm just not that kind of a person. Um, so I was surprised that he won because we'd never seen somebody as crass as Donald Trump and, you know, taken some of the positions he had taken win. I was surprised the night he won. But then I spent four years utterly disgusted by how he was treated. And just my sense of fairness, my sense of due process, my understanding of policy made me feel very defensive of him because he was not given a fair shot by the media, by big tech, by really anyone who wasn't a Trump sycophant. And it was driving me insane. The Washington Post, democracy dies in darkness. Oh, please. They were very dark during the Obama years when he was taking out his pen and his phone and doing all sorts of things that he didn't have the legal right to do. And I could go on. So, And then I started to just do something smart, which was I started to look at Donald Trump's policies and results instead of his tweets and the things he would say. Because I don't think his... I don't think he, even the people who love him would deny that he can be crass and he can be petty and thin-skinned and small. And that's not worth defending. You don't have to defend Donald Trump's lowest and worst character moments to defend him as a president or as a policymaker. And I think he did so much good. I really do. I think he, he, there's no question he was controversial, but he, he's the one who passed the Anti-Sex Trafficking Act, the one that AOC refused to, to clap for at the State of the Union. That tells you everything you need to know about Washington politics, right? The way he governed... When it comes to tax policy, taking out Soleimani, I was in favor of that. Everybody's like, we're going to have war with Iran. Well, guess what? We didn't. Reversing some of the Paris you know, accords, the, the deal with Iran on, on nuclear weapons, which was just you know, not a good deal from the beginning. Everyone knew it. Uh, now, I would disagree with him on the deal he struck with the Taliban on withdrawal. I think we're all seeing the problems with that, not because I'm a neocon, but because I'm somebody who grew up during 9-11, and I really do worry about terrorism on our shores and so on. So this is a long-winded answer and a way of saying... I understand his flaws, but I also understand his strengths. And I think we, what we need to be aware of, too, is somebody who's a wolf in sheep's clothing. You know, Biden seems like such a nice guy. And there he is looking at his watch during the funerals of our 13 Marines. You know, it's funny because uh, when I look at Biden, he actually triggers all my creep vibe. You know what I mean? Like, I don't yeah. I don't actually fall for the uh, he's a nice guy, you know, the good old Scranton Joe, you know, from Ohio. Mm -hmm. he, he strikes me as a real creep. I mean, do you not get that vibe from him? Well, when he starts sniffing the hair of, you know, 12 of seven year olds, yeah. prepubescent girls, you know, that makes me uncomfortable. And like that vibe of him, like sort of his creepy, you know, I don't I'll be kind to call it a flirty vibe. Yeah. yeah, that creeps me out. But I actually thought that he was a nice guy. I, I interviewed him for an hour. I read his book and I interviewed him for an hour on NBC along with his wife, Jill. Talked a lot about his son. This is before he was president. And I felt real empathy for him. And he's gone through a tragedy prior to that. And I thought, oh, God, this poor guy. And he's a good guy. He's kind of a hot mess when it comes to his prognostications, particularly on foreign policy. Yeah. That was evident back then. Um, but I kind of believed it. Then I interviewed Tara Reid. I don't know if she's telling the truth or not, but her story is horrific if it's true. And then you This is the one who accused things. him of sexual abuse a few years, I mean, many years ago, right? Yep. Yeah. And then you just see, you know, little things like, like I say, like checking the watch and um, the way he, he's irritated that he has to even speak about the dead Marines. Like, well, you, you did it. You're the one who put them in danger. And the callousness, I'm sorry, this is controversial too, but the callousness of, keep, of him bringing up his son, Bo, when he's talking to the Gold Star families completely inappropriate and, and not evidence of someone who's a good man, but evidence of a man who's a bit narcissistic and unable to feel empathy because true empathy is listening to somebody else's pain, not trying to bring your own yeah. into the face of a grieving mom. 
So these things matter. And if Trump had done them, everybody would agree that they matter. But since it's Biden, we're supposed to just say, oh, such a sweet guy, sweet Joe. Yeah, I actually listened I, on your show. I can't remember the name of the gentleman. He, he's a writer for National Review. Who had Charles off- C.W. Cook. Oh, exactly. And he had offered a very, I was sitting there huffing and puffing on the treadmill. And uh, he offered a very compelling, he laid out a very nice case for why it is perfectly reasonable to say, yeah, yeah, we, we, we empathize with what happened to you with, uh, with your son, Bo, but it is really grotesque for you to bring it up in the context of the, you know, the, the, those morning sessions. And so yes. that was a really good one. I have something to tell you about Charles C.W. Cook that's very disturbing. So I love him. He's a, he's a brilliant guy. I read him all the time on National Review. I, I interview him a lot. He is 36 years old. You know, I, I would have thought he's like 70 the way he speaks. I know. I've never even like, seen him. Oh, my God. I have so much more work to do. How did I fall as far behind at age 50? I should know more than he does. Not even close. You know, but could it be? It, I'm, I don't know if I'm uh, misremembering, but he has a British accent, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah, that already, I mean, you could be swearing in, in British accent and you already sound more intelligent than the average American. That's just a fact. That's a linguistic fact, auditory fact, right? So true. Yeah, yeah. 100%. And it's right. funny because my wife uh, used to work uh, as a HR executive in a telemarketing firm. And uh, when they would bring people for telemarketing positions to sell, you know, they would try to look for certain qualities in a person's voice. And as soon as, if you had a British voice, then that would already allow you to be a much better telemarketer if only because you had that fan. I mean, of course, we're not talking about the Cockney accent, which can sound pretty vile, but the sort of the standard, you know, highbrow British accent, it's half yes. the battle is won. It makes you sound not only smarter, but just more sophisticated. More sophisticated. Like you know things and you've been places. And exactly. I don't know. I, it's why everybody wants that as their, as their corporate voicemail lady. They, exactly. they choose the British option. Exactly. All right. Let's uh, move from politics a bit to more personal stuff. Uh, I had on my show about three, four years ago, my musical hero. So you you may know him because, well, everybody should know him, but you may know him because we're almost the same age. I'm a bit older than you. Uh, do you remember the group from the 1970s, the Stylistics? They, mm, no, doesn't ring a bell. Uh, you Are Everything? No, well, let me hear you sing a, a few bars. You are everything and everything, everything is, is you. Exactly, okay? Yeah. So that's, that's the Stylistics. So in the 70s, they had a whole bunch of hits. Uh, you know, I used to be, you know, humming to this guy, even though I don't speak English back in Lebanon when I was growing up in Lebanon. And through the magic of all of these online mediums, we became friends. He came on my show. I hooked up with him in Philadelphia. It was unbelievable. And during one of our chats, I asked him, uh, you know, here's this world famous singer who sang with James Brown and Michael Jackson and so on. Uh, do you get nervous before you get on stage? And actually, I was hoping for a particular answer, and I won't say what that answer is. And he actually answered, oh, I, I, I would not be able to stand on my legs. I was so nervous. And I was thinking, well, you know, if this, you know, legendary soul singer gets, uh, you know, nervous, uh, well, I guess I could use this as a, as a tool for my uh, students to empower them that when they're getting up in front of the classroom to present, hey, don't worry that the fact that your heart is beating. Uh, Russell Tompkins Jr., the lead singer of the Stylistics, gets nervous before he sings. Mm-hmm. So now you know where I was going with this. So yeah. let me come to you. You know, you're obviously really, you, you certainly project confidence. I'm sure you are confident. But do you ever, oh, I'm going to speak to this person. You know, I'm nervous. I'm insecure. I have anxieties. Do you ever get that? And if so, do you mind sharing them? 
Uh, so it would be very rare for me to be doing an interview on television or on the podcast or the radio show that I would get nervous. I, if I get nervous, it's more of an in-person deal because it's different when you can see the people, you know? And so I'd be less nervous anchoring a debate with 25 million people watching than I would getting up in front of a room of 300 people and talking to them. Um, they can see you, you know, and you can see them. It's like, oh my God, all the people, they can see me. So I do get a little nervous before public speaking. But every once in a while, I'll do a big television interview that makes me nervous. And I was actually just telling my husband about this one last night. So years ago, I had Dick Cheney come on the show uh, when I was at the Kelly File. And he it was a pre-booked gig. Like he was supposed to come on for a week along with his daughter Liz. And they were promoting some charity. I can't remember what it was. But that morning, he dropped an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal blaming the Iraq war on Barack Obama. Dick Cheney. Okay, so it's going to have to be contentious now because he dropped this crazy op-ed, and I like Dick Cheney. I might be the one, um, but that was crazy talk. So I knew it was gonna. It had gone from friendly to not so friendly. And Dick Cheney is a scary man. <laughs> and why? I, because of sort of his facial features, he doesn't smile as much. What uh, makes him scary? He's like just a little, you know, like a grizzled, you know. Yeah, okay. And also, he launched wars and. You know, he would just take you out. Like, he's just one of those guys who would easily give the takeout order. Um, so, and I respect Dick Cheney. I'm, I'm glad he was there. I don't agree with the Iraq war, but I think he did the best he could at the time. And I don't believe it was all the line pockets and so on. But anyway, so, I, and I, in a confrontation between me and Dick Cheney, I just didn't think I was going to have the upper hand at all. Uh, so I didn't know that it would go particularly well for me, but I knew I had to do my duty and, and ask him the tough questions. And I noticed in reading the intro to Dick Cheney off the teleprompter and asking my first couple of questions, I, I, I'm going to see if I can imitate it, but it was like, um, joining us tonight, the man who was vice president of the United States, <laughs> I had to stop and like find my saliva and right. also like it was shortness of breath. That's what it was. It was short. So I finished this gag. This is unfamiliar enough to me that I actually didn't recognize it for what it was. I thought I was having a heart attack, like something's going wrong with me. I, I'm, yeah. I'm having a health problem. So I actually went to my doctor and I, I'm like, something's happened. I'm getting short of breath, you know, because my dad died young. I stay on top of it. He's walking me through the setting. Like, what happened about that? And then what happened? And where were you? And who's there? And he goes, that's nerves. You were nervous. I'm like, right. no. He's like, yes, those were nerves. And sure enough, it's happened maybe twice more. And it only happens when I am nervous. So it does happen. Long with an answer again. It does happen, but it has to be someone scary. You know, I got to tell you, and I, this is probably the first time that I mentioned this uh, publicly. So to the viewers out there, you're welcome. Uh, I recently started having a few uh, responses that I think are anxiety based. And I'm like the most truly not. It's not a facade. I'm the most confident, self-assured guy, maybe to a fault that you could imagine. And I started getting these symptoms. And in one case, I think it ended up being a panic attack. And in the most innocuous situation, I was driving with my family. There was no trigger. We were going to get Peruvian chicken. That doesn't <laughs> cause great stress. Uh, and I started getting tingly in my uh, fingers. Uh, I had to get out of the car, pull the car over. I started walking back and forth, trying to catch my breath. We went to the emergency. I said, Am I having a stroke? Am I having a heart? And then they said, no, it was a, it was a panic attack. And, mm -hmm. and I, there is no trigger for it. I have no idea why it came about. And so even this though- Is this recent? I, 
it was, it was recent. And, and even though, I mean, as a psychologist, I can certainly, you know, go through the, the academic checklist of what is, when it happens to you, there's an expression in Arabic that says, you know, don't, don't read a textbook, try it to really, ex- to know what it's like. Mm-hmm. And uh, to have experienced it, it's terribly destabilizing. And I think it really, it, it, it's kind of a feedback loop because now you start panicking about the possibility of ever having again, a panic attack because mm-hmm. it comes out of nowhere. And, there was no reason for me to have now i think i know if i if i were to self diagnose which will eventually lead us to a discussion of therapy if if you'd like uh about 4 years ago i started receiving a lot of death threats because i am who i am and i speak mm-hmm. out against a lot of i things and people get upset even though i don't think i'm i don't set out to be controversial i'm not trying to be contrarian i just speak the truth as i see it mm-hmm. uh, and that's when i first started experiencing those symptoms because i would literally go into the university i'd have to be uh escorted with security to my classes and they would wait for me outside of class we'd have to, we had to go to the montreal police to file a police report we meaning myself and a university representative and i think that's when i started having these symptoms and then later as i became more known and actually that's something i'm going to ask you in a second when i finish this long-winded setup uh being you know uh, someone who is known all the time in the streets and so on while it is very beautiful right because you're you're almost always just getting positive that people don't come up to me to swear at me it's almost 100 yeah. percent very sweet that itself and even though I'm, I'm the most extroverted guy, the most comfortable guy in my skin, it starts creating a sense of dread in you because uh, you always feel like you have to be on because you want to be polite when someone comes up and if they want to take a selfie and if they want you this and that. And so I think all that put together led to that you know, singular episode of a panic mm-hmm. attack. I had you know, many things happening. So in your case, and you know, you're, you're, I believe, a lot more famous than I am, you must be approached tons of time. Does that ever cause you any stressors or do you take it in stride? What, what's, how do you interact with it? So first of all, I'm sorry that you're going through that. It is such a downside of public life. I mean, early on in my TV career, I was only on TV for maybe, I don't know, 18 months. I developed a very bad stalker, like a serious stalker. Wow. And the guy wound up in jail for, he went to, well, he went away for 10 years, five years to jail, five years to a mental facility. And um, my therapist back then said to me, this is a great chance to sit back and decide before you go any further in this business whether this is worth it. You know, whether being a broadcast journalist is worth the significant downside of lack of privacy, becoming a public figure, becoming endangered. And by the way, Gad, people like you and, and me who look directly into the camera and speak to people get stalked and have security threats more than the average like celebrity or TV star or you know Hollywood person because people who are at home who are not well think we're looking right at them. So true. That it's a direct relationship between us. So we actually are at a greater risk. So it's it's very, it is destabilizing when you realize your anonymity is gone and you're in this new, you wanted to do this new wonderful thing and have your say on important issues, but it does come at a cost. And I would just say one other thing. So now I, I will, for what it's worth, now I have somebody else manage all the security threats. So. When they come in, Abby, who's like you know my little sister and my assistant and the COO of my life, um, she just farms it off to a security team. By the way, I'd be happy to connect you with them, and they just look into it. Like I, they'll go visit somebody's house, and I don't even know about it. They just so they try to protect me from that. And wow. I recommend that. It only comes to me if the threat's gotten so bad that you know I need to know what the visual is and sort of 
take active steps. But wait, I wanted to make another point because when you were talking about this, I could relate a little bit. I haven't had a panic attack, but I have noticed the past six months, I'm much quicker to anger than normal for me. Mm. And I'm like, what's going on? You know, I mean, even with your did, family, you mean not, not professionally. Yeah, with everyone, okay. with everyone. <clears throat> we moved. So I was like, okay, that's a stressful thing. Maybe that, but I'm like, I don't think it's the move. And you know what I've determined? It's, it's a couple of things, but it's basically the never ending lockdowns, masks, yeah. the thumb of big government, which is everywhere I look. My kids masked eight to nine hours a day you know, mandatory vaccinations and I'm vaccinated and I like vaccines, but I don't like being told that I have to stick a needle in my 12 year old's arm. And he's coming up on 12 this month. Um, with a government that uh, to be perfectly honest, you know, I don't, I don't support what Joe Biden's doing. I don't like the way he's governing. He's spending my children's money. He's totally irresponsible with it. Government is growing at an alarming rate. The culture wars that we're in, the, the nonstop wokeness, the shaming of my children for the color of their skin, the, the shaming of me because I'm, I'm a, I'm a white woman, but I'm a woman. So that's a, you know, all of it is so complicated and beyond my control. It feels beyond my control that it's making me angry. And it, it sort of, it took me a moment to stop and realize all this stuff I think I'm handling so well and, you know, gracefully, it's actually is getting to me. I'm, I'm only human. I think I'm not alone in sort of being so just fed up at this point. Wow. Uh, so this leads us to what I said that we would get to eventually, which is therapy. I think you've spoken openly about the fact that you go into therapy, uh, yeah. that you've gone into therapy. Before I ask you the question, uh, I thought I would start off by telling you about a project that I'm just starting with a colleague of mine who's a clinical psychologist. He's a professor of psychology, uh, but he's also a clinician. And so what we're thinking of doing is looking at cross-cultural differences in the perception of mental therapy the idea being so for example if you come like like i do from the middle east well what is this therapy bullshit i mean why don't you roll up your sleeves you little whiner and you're gonna go and you're gonna tell someone a third party a stranger your most inner secrets and your weaknesses you know we come from a culture of honor in the middle east so you would never do that so you could imagine how across cultures the way that people might interact or respond to the idea of therapy would be very different so having said that is there anything that you'd like to talk about the, the virtues of therapy or address what I just said or anything that you'd like? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's nice for someone as public as you to talk about personal issues. I love it. I love therapy. I mean, I think it's a gift you give to yourself. And in no way do I agree with that attitude um, you know, that you talk about from the Middle East and put it into that same field as the pumpkin spice latte from the Park Slope Brooklynite. I don't see that as even remotely in the same field. It's, it's wellness. We're talking about wellness when we talk about therapy and everybody has issues, everybody. So it's really just about whether they're tolerable or whether you could get a little happier and a little bit more settled by talking through your issues. And it's great. I love the relationship with the therapist because I don't have to listen to any of his nonsense and he has to listen to all of mine. Isn't that called marriage? <laughs> is, there, is, there something, is there something about whether it be this therapist or any other therapist that you've had that either made it a successful dynamic or not. And before before you answer that question, for, forgive me for, for, for stalling for a second, uh, it turns out that the number one predictor of the efficacy of therapy in terms of the characteristic of the therapist is that if he is he or she are empathetic. So you could take someone who's empathetic 
and has a degree from a third tier school and they'll be a lot better than if you took someone who you know didn't have good listening skills as a therapist and came from a phd from stanford so having said that what's your answer as to what what constitutes a good therapist you're gonna laugh because i i have i've had two that have really made a difference in my life and who i absolutely adore um and yes i would say they're empathetic but the the advice that they've given that stands out to me and one of the reasons i love them you wouldn't necessarily describe as empathetic i'll give you an example um my guy now who i love he's uh, originally from south africa so he has a light accent and um he, i was crying in my soup after my departure from nbc and i'm like poor me right feeling sorry for myself he's listening and and uh i kind of finished my rant and he looks at me and he goes I don't feel sorry for you at all. <laughs> so he starts listing all the amazing things I have in my life. And I was like, oh my God, truer words have never been spoken. He's exactly right. I, who am I, what, what, the, what am I doing feeling sorry for myself? I had this great life. I had a setback. NBC is full of a bunch of assholes. Okay, I take that back. It, it, they're lovely people, but they were feeling like assholes at the time. And, um, what am I complaining about? I have nothing to complain about. Move on. Like there, People have real problems, and, and my shit is nowhere near on the list. And so I kind of needed that kick in the pants. You know, Sometimes you need the kick in the pants, and even the empathetic therapist kind of knows it. And it's frankly the way I felt when I listened to Meghan Markle crying about what, what title her kid was going to get. Oh, man, she's a victim. She's a victim. Uh, but, you know, uh, there are two types of therapeutic approaches. There's one where they never will answer a prescriptive question because it's up to you to you know have that closure right so they mm -hmm. so if you say so what should i do should i leave him they'll they'll always reframe it in some way and it's never appropriate for them to offer you an advice and then there are other therapists who think it's completely appropriate so wh what do you work so i'm guessing you probably work better with someone who can be directive Yes, I like directive. And I'll tell you, I wrote about her in my book. My lady Amy was my therapist who said, now's a good time to consider whether you want to be a public figure or not. Mm. Um, but she saw me through my first divorce, my, my only divorce. <laughs> and um, that's a big decision, right? Because especially because when I was married to Dan and Dan and I are still friends, um, I, it wasn't awful. And, you know, it's very hard to leave something that's good for the for no promise of something great. You know, it's not like I had met Doug. Um, it would have been easier if things had been terrible. And then I was said, oh, clearly I got to get out of this marriage. So it was a tough decision. And she actually, she was very frank. And I was, you know, I said something like, oh, I love Dan. And she goes, you don't love Dan. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, what? And you look, I love Dan to this moment as a human, as a, as a person on this sure. earth. But she meant as a husband in the way that a wife loves a husband. And, and she was right about that. And it took a strong therapist and guide to lay it on me like that. But man, once I heard her say it, I knew it, she was right. Wow. All right. We only have, I want to be mindful. I know you have another meeting soon, so maybe we'll go for another four minutes. Let's end it hey, on a I've, few. I've got eight, but whatever you have. Oh, okay. Then we can go. Okay. I wasn't sure if you yeah. needed a break between. Okay. So we got eight yeah, minutes. No, Perfect. Uh, what makes a good conversationalist? Because obviously one of the reasons, and I, I don't put myself nearly in the same league as you in terms of, you know, the, the power of your shows, but I think, People resonate with both of us because we, we both were, I think we speak well, we tell good stories, we, we package information well, but also you can't have a show where you're engaging in chats if you don't know how to listen. So it seems like it might be second nature to, for most people to be good listeners, but clearly that's not the case. Can you break it down for us? What's a good listener? What's a good conversationalist? 
So I have to give my, my brother, Pete Kelly, credit for this one because I think it, he nailed it. And he said, um, and yes, because the answer is to be a good listener. And so what does that mean? And he said, the difference between good listeners and everyone else is they're not reloading while you speak. Yes, yes, I get what exactly. So they're thinking about what they're going to say and they have a blank stare. They're not really listening to what you're saying. Right. The good listener is like, this is interesting and I'm really going to try to understand it. And then if you are in tune enough, if you read enough, if you talk to people enough, a natural inquiry should just come to you, right? It's like the, an interesting follow-up should come to you if you just stay steeped in information, whether it's from other people or from books or from magazines or even from television. You know, just stay steeped in new information. And an interesting follow-up should come to you. And if it doesn't, then that's something you should work on by taking in more information. But that's half the battle is, is actually listening to what the person's saying. So true. I was just listening to a interview with Clint Eastwood. I despise most actors. I think they are pure scum. Uh, yes. Not Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood is my guy. I mean, if there were someone that I'd love to chat with on my show, it would probably be Clint Eastwood. Maybe you could tell us who, who is the elusive guest that hasn't been on your show yet. Do you want to tell us right away before I go on with the story? Um, you... Well, I'd really like to interview Bashar al-Assad, but <laughs> one day it'll happen. Uh, his, his dad, uh, we had connections with him. My parents were freed from Fatah when they were kidnapped in 1980, in part because of some connections we had with Yasser Arafat and the dad of Bashar al-Assad. So oh. there you go. Yeah. I just think it would be amazing. It would be explosive. It would be tough. It would be great. But anyway, that's well, a, a weird one. But yeah, that's that's easy. Yeah, that's, one. Well, fair enough. Uh, so to come back to Clint, so I was watching, I was listening to him. Uh, do you remember that show with this rather kind of smarmy guy uh, inside the actor's studio? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you James Lipton. Is that his name? Okay. Okay. Um, so this was maybe in 2003 and he was asking him, you know, what constitutes a good actor? And he answered in line with what we're saying here, just be a good listener. So I think it exactly speaks to that because oh. you want to be able to stand there and not be thinking about what you're going to say next, but you really have to project as though you're listening. And I thought, oh, that's actually something that I'd like to add in the list of how to be a good conversationalist or a good actor. So there you go. It's true. It's, uh, well, listen, it's sometimes it's hard. You're fascinating. So it's easy listening to you. Thank you. Sometimes, you know, people drone on and on and repeat themselves and use a lot of word salad. And it's like, oh, you know, you'd rather be doing anything than listening to right. them. And I would say in, in terms of like hosting your own show, um, part of the part of the secret sauce is knowing when you have an interesting guest and when you don't, and you know, if, if I'm talking all the time, if the, I'm the majority talker, it's probably because my guest is not a good guest, yeah. right? This is like not a very good talker. Actually, I get the most, I, just like you, I don't really get nervous before I'm about to do a show. If anything, I'm super excited and I'm really looking forward to it. I'm like a kid in a candy store. The, the only time I get nervous is when I have a guest that I think might be a dud. And that for all of, for example, I, I'm bringing on some academic who, who does great, interesting scientific research, but I'm not sure if they are ultra charismatic. Although I try to vet them, but, you know, maybe they'll completely, you know, flip out and, you know, do a poor job. That's when I get nervous because I'm worried yeah. that what if I can't pull out anything out of you and the whole thing is going to go south really quickly. Yes. Oh, we used to have that sometimes on the Kelly file. And, you know, you do you do need a booker and a screener, somebody who t t talks yes. to them in advance and make sure. But I they, some get through and I say that was TV death. That was TV <laughs> death. Never put me in that position again. OK, last question for you. So there are probably millions of people who would love to be the next uh, Megan Kelly. 
is there a particular set of you know prescriptive recipe that you could offer people not to guarantee them that they're going to be Megan Kelly, but that they could be on their way to that trajectory. Yeah. Well, I would definitely say you got to be your authentic self, whoever it is. You know, if your body, be body. If you're, you know, if you're nerdy, be nerdy. But lean into whatever you really are. Whatever it is, just don't be boring. Because if you're boring, you're not going to make it in television or as a sort of personality of any kind. And if you are boring and you know you're boring, go get less boring. You know, do some of the things that we were talking about. Read more. Go out more. Even if you're an introvert, push yourself to become a little bit more dynamic. And the way you do that is with more inputs, right? Not just words on a book or in a book on a page. But go out and see see movies, watch some pop culture, go join a book club, do something to make yourself a little bit more stimulated. And then I think you'll become a little bit more stimulating. And this is one of my, this is one of the reasons why I tell people not to go right into journalism from J school, right? Go out and live a little, work at a company, fail, get some scars. Yes. Yes. Have things not work out. That's a gift. Um, nobody likes somebody who's totally perfect, right? We, We like to see people fall down and then get back up and, you know, so on and so forth. But the, the only thing that I have done that I think is like the, the most important thing is the same thing that most successful people have done, which is I've worked my butt off. And, um, you know, that's why I don't really have a lot of tolerance for people who are like, oh, you know, we should have exactly the same position, even though I took two years off, you know, and to raise my babies. And it's like, I'm all for stay at home motherhood. I'm all for taking a time off to go be with your kids. But I didn't do it. And it's, I, I achieved a certain level of success because I didn't do it. And now I don't think you can snap your fingers and say, I deserve to be right where, where you are because I've made certain sacrifices. It's not for everyone, you yeah. know, and now I've gotten smart and, and changed my life to where I can be with my kids more. But that's just one example of how if you really, really want to be very successful professionally, you will have to make some sacrifices and you will have to work your tail off. And uh, it's up to you whether that's what you want. But if that's what you want, do it and do it unapologetically and do it better than anybody. What a beautiful way to end. People can watch you on the Megan Kelly show, which is now serious. Is there a particular channel? Is it 111? I catch it on 111. Is it different? So that's right. They have, they have lots of options. You can listen to it live between 12 and 2 p.m. Eastern time on Sirius XM Triumph 111. Or you can watch it via podcast. Same as always. Download it free. Or you can watch it on YouTube now at our YouTube channel, which is YouTube.com. What a pleasure. Stay on the line just so I could say bye to you offline. Thank you so much for coming on, Megan. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. The pleasure was all mine, Gad. Anytime. Cheers.